Uh, well, good morning, and my name is John, one of the pastors here. Glad to have you worshiping with us uh, this morning. I'd invite you to turn to our scripture passage. We're looking at Exodus chapter 20, and we're just looking at the first two verses. Uh, so Exodus 20, 1 to 2. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray that we would hear you speak today, that these words which you spoke so many thousands of years ago would be spoken again here in our worship. We pray that you would speak not just to our ears, but that your words would speak to our hearts and our souls to build us up in Christ Jesus and to transform us into your holy people who will be a light and a blessing to the rest of the world. We pray that you would do this. Only you can. Father, speak today. We pray. Amen. Well, uh, Molly, uh, our oldest daughter, and I, we've been building kind of slowly this marble tower from a kit that she got for her birthday. And when it's all finished, you'll be able to turn this wooden handle, which will spin a series of gears that will then lift a uh, metal marble up from the bottom, up this tower, and push it onto this track, and then it will slide down the track to the bottom, to the queue of marbles, and where it will eventually be picked back up to the top and come back down again. Now, when you first open the box, all you have are a handful of these wooden sheets with hundreds of labeled pieces on them that you pop out and then have to figure out how to put together. Uh, you've got a few metal rods, and thankfully you've got a very thick instruction book, because we would have no idea how to do it if it wasn't for those instructions. Now, we could say, after we open that up, and say, look at it, say, ah, I don't need no stinking instructions, and toss the booklet in the trash, and proceed to build this marble tower however we see fit. Now, we could see how tall a tower we could build. Uh, we could see if we could make something that looks like Optimus Prime from the Transformers. But I guarantee you, whatever we built, we would not build a tower that lifts a marble up from the bottom, brings it up to the top, sets it on the track, and then descends to go down to uh, grab the next marble and bring it up. And we would never experience the delight of seeing all those gears spinning and moving and tr changing one form of work into another and performing as they were made to. Uh, this week, we finally got some of the gears put together, and the thing is far from complete. But even as we spun those gears, our, our eyes lit up at the excitement of, wow, look at this thing we've built. Now, there's many different ways to think about laws. There are silly laws. For instance, Washington State declared uh, in a law that slaying Bigfoot would be a penalty, and you'd be subject to five years in prison. There are laws that are rarely enforced. Probably many of you know those things that you can get away with and probably won't ever be called out on it. There are annoying laws. There are dumb laws. Uh, but there's another way to think about laws, that they paint a picture of how something is intended to work. You can think of laws kind of like design diagrams that a carpenter uses to make sure that your house is structurally sound and you don't end up with a toilet in your kitchen. Following laws, design documents, is what makes the difference between a good and reliable car and a lemon. And I think it's helpful to think about God's law in that way as well. 
we're in really the second mini-series through the book of Exodus uh, that we are called the, calling the gift of the law. God is giving his people his design documents for what his kingdom is supposed to look like. You see, these laws that we're going to start looking at and studying are not just some arbitrary list of God's preferences that he uses to kind of grade your eternal report card. How are you doing? How are you going to fare in the afterlife? But actually, his laws here are the blueprints for a beautiful community. And that's what I want us to remember this morning. God's law is a blueprint for a beautiful community. And we're going to look at this under three uh, headings. First, God's speech, God's redemption, and then God's promise. So God's speech. The first two verses of chapter 20 uh, are important to help us understand the rest of the Ten Commandments as God has intended them. That's why we're spending the whole sermon just looking at these. And actually, I went back and forth on how to approach the Ten Commandments. Will we take them in chunks, or will we look at them one week at a time? And I decided, I think it's helpful enough, we're going to spend one week on each commandment, understanding it and, and kind of plumbing the depths of it. So it's going to make these sermons a little bit different than some of the other ones in Exodus, but I hope it will help us see how deep and rich these commandments are. Now, one thing to understand when we look at these laws is that laws in ancient times and these set of God's laws were paradigmatic, which means they set forth a principle, they, a model that then was supposed to be applied to a bunch of different situations. And so the job of a judge was to understand the principles and then apply them to the particular case that he was looking at at that time which they're contrasted with today's laws, right? Which today's laws, if you've ever tried to read, you know, the code or law about something, you know why lawyers have jobs, right? They write laws that no one else can understand, so you have to pay them then to interpret them, right? And the idea is that much of today's laws are set up so people can't find any loopholes. You've heard of someone who maybe was probably guilty, but they get set off free because of a technicality or a loophole in the law. And so we then need to create more laws to cover those loopholes and pay the lawyers more money, kind of this cat and mouse game, in order to try to make sure there's no loopholes in the laws. And then we have law books that are, you know, could fill this entire room. But ancient societies like Israel looked at law very differently. They didn't have loopholes. They said the principles are what matter and we will apply those principles to different situations. So for instance, in Exodus 22, which we'll get at at some point, the law says that if you steal, you steal an ox or a sheep, you need to make restitution for that ox or that sheep that you stole. And you couldn't go before the judge and say, your honor, well, I, I want to just let you know that I didn't steal an ox or a sheep, I stole a goat. And that's not mentioned in this passage, so you can't punish me because I didn't steal what it talks about. And the judge would look at you and say, oh, <laughs> silly criminal, you don't realize how the laws work here. The principle is you don't steal. Whether it's an ox or a sheep or a goat, you still need to make restitution for it. And that is why we can spend a week studying each one of the Ten Commandments. Because they're laying down principles that then we are called to apply to all different areas of life. So let's look at verse 2 real quick. I am the Lord, your God. God begins with a reminding them of his relationship. He doesn't say, I'm a God out there. He doesn't say, I'm the God, which he is. But he says, he's your God. 
And I think that's really applicable for us today because fewer and fewer people like the idea of organized religion. And so many people are instead interested in spirituality or finding God on your own terms, saying, oh, I, I don't experience God in a building. I like to find God in nature or meditation or other types of experiences. And this sounds good. I can understand why people are attracted to it. But the issue with that is your spiritual stability is only as strong as your last spiritual experience. That in one sense, so much of today's spirituality is no surer than Ariel in The Little Mermaid, where she's sitting on the piece of coral. You probably all remember the scene, and she's dreaming of Prince Eric, and she's holding, I don't know, some sort of sea flower, and pulling off one petal at a time, saying, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And why is she doing this to figure out whether or not Prince Eric loves her? Because Prince Eric hasn't spoken to her. He hasn't told her how he feels about her. And so her greatest assurance of his love is relegated to the luck of the petal, whatever petal is remaining as she goes through this little rhythm. But if, and, and similarly, if we get rid of a God who speaks to us, your spiritual foundation is always relegated to the luck of the petal. Whatever little signs you see in the world, it's always tied to your feelings. And your spiritual foundation will be as stable as jello. And we have so little control over our feelings. Every one of you knows that. So often it feels like our feelings control us. And do you want to have your spirituality always being pulled to or fro depending on how you feel one day? But Israel gets something better. They get to hear God say, I'm your God. And we take this back to verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Now that's one of those sections we just kind of jump over. But don't miss the significance of that. Think about it this way. Who enjoys people watching? You go to Starbucks or a coffee shop, yeah, many of us, right? And, and you're looking in the Starbucks, and you see a guy who's dressed in like business casual, and he's always on the phone, and he's always talking too loudly, and he's making jokes, right? And what do you think? Oh, he's probably some sort of sales guy, right? Uh, or you see someone there on their computer with big, heavy headphones, and they're wearing tennis shoes, dark blue jeans, and a hoodie, and what do you think? Oh, probably some sort of software developer. Or you see someone, not in the coffee shop, but uh, with black polyester pants, short sleeve white shirt, riding a bicycle, what are they? Probably a missionary. <laughs> you can learn all kinds of different things just by watching someone, by observing them. But in the end, all it is is mostly educated guesses. And you can't learn what's on the inside. You can't learn what they're thinking, what they're feeling, who they are. But if they speak, you learn things about them that days of observation may never reveal. But today, we are so quick to get rid of the idea of a God who speaks. And instead, people are attracted to a spirituality that might give you certain feelings or experiences. But in the end, it's like all you're doing is kind of like God watching. You're looking around at all the things that maybe could feel like God and say, oh, I believe God must be like this or that. And because so many people today think that God hasn't spoken clearly, well, then it's legitimate for every person to make a guess about what God is like. 
oh, I like a God like this. You can't say there is just one true religion if God has never spoken. Everyone is just kind of making guesses about what that is. Everyone is feeling different aspects of what God is. And, and everyone probably has some of the truth, but can't claim to have all of the truth. And to claim that you have all of the truth would, in one sense, be ignorant, right? That's kind of the culture that we live in. But everything about that idea changes if God opens his mouth and says, this is who I am. Right? Suddenly, you have to take that seriously, more seriously than your own observations of what you think God is like. Like if you're people watching, right, and you see this girl come into Starbucks and you say, she really looks like a Jenny, and I bet she just loves chocolate. I don't know, I just get that sense. Right? But then if you meet her, and she says, well, actually, my name is Roxanne, and chocolate makes me break out in hives. To insist on continuing to call her Jenny and giving her chocolate would not just be silly, but it would eventually get offensive, right? Because you're not listening to who she says she is, who she is disclosing, this is who I am, this is my name, this is what I like. But why do we think we get that it is offensive to do that with people, to not call them by their name, to not accept who they say they are? But why do we think, though, we can get away with that when it comes to God, to not listen what he says he is or who he says, what he says he likes and instead insist on giving him these things and calling him these names that he doesn't like or answer to. And if you get offended with someone calling you or refusing to call you by your name, why would it be any different with God? And if God actually speaks, you can't get away with kind of you know, best guesses. Well, I, I like a God like this, or I like a God like that. If God speaks and says, this is who I am, you either have to accept it or reject it. You can't go and create a God that fits kind of your own preferences. And so if God speaks, the other advantage, though, is you get to know that God in a way that you could never know him just by people watching. You get to know if he likes you if he loves you. You get to know his character. You get to know who he is. You can actually have a personal relationship with that God because he speaks to you. And see, the central question, I think, for Christianity is, has God actually spoken? Has the God who has created everything that we see Right? And, and everyone around the world recognizes there is something bigger than me. Has that God actually opened his mouth and said, this is who I am? And I think Christianity has better answers than anything else to say that the God who is behind all this actually has spoken. And will we listen to his words? And so this brings us to our second point, God's redemption. In the Ten Commandments that follow, God is showing us his character, what he cares about. But also before he shows that, he tells the Israelites what he thinks about them. But he says, I'm the God that redeemed you. I'm the God that looked at you when you were suffering and no one cared about you and you were at the bottom of the totem pole and when you had nothing to offer and when you were one of the most pitiful groups of people out there, I'm the God who saw you in your weakness, saw you in your distress and picked you up and brought you out of slavery. I love you. Before giving the law, he reminds them of his redemption. Redemption comes before the rules. 
It's not that God says he gives the Ten Commandments when they're in Egypt. He said, hey guys, here's ten rules. If you can check all these off, then I'll get you out of Egypt. Like we do with our kids. If you can keep your room clean for ten days, well, you can get a prize at the end of it. No, God works the other way. He says, I have rescued you from Egypt before you followed any of my commands. Before you even knew what they all were. And then remember how Israel acted while God was redeeming them. Back in Exodus chapter 5, Moses comes away from his first confrontation with Pharaoh saying, you need to let these people go, you need to release them from slavery. And then some of the Israelites come and ambush Moses and say, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh. You've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Or after the Israelites get their first taste of freedom, after the ten plagues, they make it out of Egypt, and they're, they're starting to see a good future in front of them, but then they run into the Red Sea, but they don't praise God. God, thank you so much for bringing us out of slavery. This is so great. What do they do? Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Israel is complaining all the time that God is redeeming them. They don't show thanks. I mean, many of you have probably been in that situation. You're trying to help someone. And how does it make you feel when they don't, they don't just not say thank you, they actually complain about the good things you're trying to do for them. But God doesn't say, well, go back to Egypt. What does he do? He brings them out into freedom. He doesn't dangle redemption over their head. If you guys don't behave, I'm sending you back to Egypt. No, he redeems them even when they're complaining about it. These commandments aren't the condition for God saving his people. It's not the report card for God saying, this is how much I love you, depending on how many A's you get on this. Well, what are they for then? We've got to flip back to chapter 19, verse 6, where it says, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Wes preached about this two Sundays ago. These are God's blueprint for how he's going to create a society that is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that shines with the radiance of the sun, a, a land that smells with the sweetness of God. These commands are God's design documents for how Israel will be a beacon of hope to the rest of the world, a model for a society that will reflect the purity and the love and the beauty of God. The giving of the law here, it's almost like the continuation of God's work of creation. If we think about it, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, God spoke his word and the universe came into existence. And he created this beautiful garden called Eden. And it was beautiful because it aligned with God's design documents. But it didn't take too long for it to get corrupted. And now God is at work to create a new Eden a garden nation where life is in harmony with God and it will one day spread to the rest of the globe. And God is giving his people the constitution, the design documents for what that new Eden-like nation will be like. And then this brings us to our third point, God's promise. Well, how then do these commands, which we're going to spend the next 10 weeks looking at, apply to us? And people tend to go in two different directions when it comes to thinking about God's law, particularly in the Old Testament. 
On one hand, people can sometimes say, oh, we've got Jesus. We don't need to look at the Old Testament law. That's all old stuff. It doesn't apply to us. We've got Jesus. We don't need to worry about anything else. Or people think, well, man, if I want God to bless me, I better follow all these rules to get on his good side. Even Christians today, we say, well, I know I was saved by grace, but deep down you feel like, but I better do these extra things if I want to kind of rise to the top and God to be good to me in life. And both of these approaches have elements of the truth, but they miss the fundamental truth of how the law applies to us. I want us to consider 1 Peter 2.9. We're actually going to look at a bunch of different passages. You might want to jot these down if, to look at them later. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice there were certain similarities to that passage in chapter 19 I mentioned earlier, which sets the context for giving the Ten Commandments. It says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is laying out, here's my blueprints. If you follow these blueprints, you will become this holy nation through which the rest of the world will be blessed. But then when we fast forward to 1 Peter... In Exodus, it's talking about in the future, you will be. But in 1 Peter, it says you are. And 1 Peter was a letter written to New Testament believers like you and me. And Peter is writing to tell them, you are royal priests. You are a holy nation. So how did we go from that change from you will become this to Peter writing to probably non-Jews, you have become this, you are this. Well, we have to go back to 1 Peter 2.5. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. You see, what changed from the you will be in Exodus 19 to the you are in 1 Peter 2 is the work and mediation of Jesus Christ. That is what made us into these things. And how is that? Well, again, a couple more passages. Matthew 5, verse 1. This is in the New Testament. It's one of the Gospels. And it says, One day Jesus saw the crowds gathering, and Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach. Do you notice certain echoes of our passage in this section? In Exodus, what are the people doing there? All gathering around the base of the mountain to hear God speak. And Matthew, almost like he has that passage in the back of his mind, he describes it as the crowds are gathering around this mountain to hear what? The word of God in Jesus speak to the people. And what does Jesus speak? Well, if you look through the rest of Matthew 5 and 6, it's the Beatitudes. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He references the commandments, but then takes them a level deeper. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard the commandment that says, he's talking about the 10 commandments, which come right after our passage. You must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is speaking a new law 
from this mountain. He's giving a kingdom vision, the blueprints for what a beautiful community will look like. So then Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17, Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Well, what does he mean there? Let's bring in one more passage. Luke chapter 4, verse 5, another New Testament gospel. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he's been spent, he spent 40 days out in the wilderness without eating, and he's been tempted by Satan. And then the devil shows up and shows them all of the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you, Jesus, all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus here in Luke 4 faced the same temptation every one of us face. The temptation where there's this offer of something good. Something that God maybe has promised you or offered you. But instead of getting to there God's way, you find an easier way to get there. With just a little compromise. With less suffering. And maybe not how God planned for you to get there. The shortcut. Jesus knew that the the Father had promised to make him the king of all nations. And now Jesus is at the beginning of his public ministry, and he says, oh, here's a way that I can become the king of all nations, and I don't have to follow the way of the cross. I can skip the suffering, and I can get it three years earlier with just a little compromise. I just got to worship the devil on the side. I mean, how often do we have these things, often good things, and we say, well, this is a good thing, and we ignore the means that we get there. God cares about how you get there as much as you getting there. But Jesus replies, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus ties it back to the commandments that we're about to look at. In trusting and worshiping God, For Jesus meant that he would need to follow that path to the suffering and death of the cross. But he needed to take that rocky and hard trail, even though he saw, oh, here's a nice smooth trail that I could go on without getting any blisters or sweating too much. But he knew if I do that, I won't keep my heart pure. And that's what matters. And see, Jesus was the only human to actually do what Exodus 19 offered. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Every single one of us, every person that lived before us, we always fail at that, of loving God more than anything else, of thinking, oh, well, I can just take this easier way and get to what God promised me without the suffering. Jesus became what Israel never did. He embodied God's kingdom vision even unto death. He became that holy nation, the only one to do that. And the only way that we achieve that you are, that First Peter talks about, you are a holy nation, is not through our own efforts, because every one of us were spectacular failures. It's through being united to Jesus, the one who actually did it. Friends, when you are connected to Christ through faith, even if it's just a spark of faith, and you feel so weak, and you know how screwed up you are, but you look to Jesus, Jesus not only takes all your sins away from you, 
but he gives you his perfect record of commandment keeping. He does what you failed to do so that every one of your sins are no longer yours. But Jesus says they're mine. Your addiction that you can't seem to get over, that's mine. Your sexual failures and sins, those are mine. You're continuing to yell at the kids and you try to stop it, it is so hard, that's mine. You compromising at work and you know you shouldn't do it but you can't stop it, that's mine. Your paralyzing fear that's keeping you from doing the things you should do, Jesus says, that's now mine. Jesus becomes the very ugliest and shameful parts about you and me, and he says, they're no longer yours, they're mine. And he takes them to the cross. But then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't clean out all the filth from our hearts, but he replaces that with his perfection and beauty, his perfect law-keeping, his following everything that God asked, so that when God looks at you, he sees the perfection and beauty of Jesus all over you. God can look at you and say, you're beautiful. And he's not lying. He means it because he sees the beauty of himself in you. He sees someone who's never screwed up. When he smells your life, he smells the aroma of Christ. And so that you are a holy priest, not because of your efforts, but because you have, through nothing of your own, Jesus has pulled you into his life and united himself to your heart and made you a priest because he is the true one. And so that kingdom of priests, that holy nation, you cannot find it in any earthly kingdom or nation. Cannot find it. It will not be fulfilled in any nation that is on this earth, that has been on this earth, or will be on this earth. It is those people from every tribe and tongue and nation that have been called in to Christ that are God's holy kingdom. And it looks different from every other worldly kingdom. And that church, that's what it is, is called to shine forth the beauty of God's perfection into a world. The, the, the light of the hope of the gospel into a world that knows only hate and corruption and prejudice, racism, war, rape, and violence. And we are, as the church, supposed to be a community that shows something that is so different from that. The church should be a beautiful community. Is that our church? Yeah, I'm thankful in so many ways it is. But we can always grow in it. We can't take it for granted. It is so easy to get pulled into the various fights and tensions of this world, and we lose the thing that is uniquely ours, the supremacy of Christ. I think one of the greatest threats to the church today is when churches just divide along all the same divisions that we see in our nation so that the church doesn't look any different Certain churches look no different from the conservative sides of our nation and no different from the liberal sides of our nation. Friends, we have something better than what any of those offer. We have the beauty and the smell of Christ. The church needs to smell of heaven. It needs to be a light of hope into the world. It must show that when someone comes and visits our church, any Christian church, that they are struck by all the diversity and different types of people they see here. And they must see that what brings us together and what leads us to love one another isn't shared political convictions. 
or who we voted for, or our ethnicity, or our cultural background, or our stage in life, or our education, or our hobbies, or our financial position. No, we count all of that as rubbish when compared to the glory of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me. That he has picked us up from the muck of our self-destruction, the muck of your own self-righteousness, and he has lifted us up when we don't deserve any of it to taste of the very divine. But you can, wor- you can wrestle with that. You say, but if Jesus has done this for me, that if God looks at me and, and sees the perfection of Jesus, well, I don't feel that. My life is so far from perfect. But friends, that is where I think the law is our gift. Because for us as believers, the law is this hopeful picture of who God is turning you into. I think one of the best ways to think about it is this way. You want to see the beauty of God's law, right? So many people today, they say God's rules, God's ways, it is harmful for us. But you want to see the beauty of God's law? Well, go take a walk in nature. Go climb a mountain. Go watch the sunset. Go become a billionaire and shoot yourself up into space. And open your eyes to see the beauty of a universe that is in harmony with God's law. And it will take your breath away. The beauty of our world is such because it is following God's design plan. When he spoke his word into the universe, how many ever, thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's reflecting God's glory because it's following his intent for it. Now friends, the problem is God's law feels so hard for us right now. But God calls you to follow his design plans. And what the hope is, is no matter how hard that is, no matter how much you have to fight in yourself to do it because of the sin, God calls you to follow his design plans and then your life will shine with his radiance. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. I think one of the things that you want, you want to know how well you understand the gospel, it's when God's law ceases to primarily be a list of things that make you feel guilty, or it ceases to primarily be a, a list of ways that you feel like God's just spoiling all my fun here. It ceases to primarily be a way in which you look at it as a checklist to get some more blessings or favor from God. And instead, the law is transformed into a beautiful blueprint of what your and my and the church's life will one day look like. That's when that is your reaction to God's law. Delight. You know you've understood the gospel. Because you know there is no way that I will ever do that. And yet you have an incredible hope because you know that through the work of Christ, one day I will become that. That one day, we all struggle with what we want to do and what we know is right. But one day, your duty will become your greatest delight. And your life will shine with the radiance of 500 sunsets. And your voice will join the chorus of the oceans. And you will take your place in that beautiful community, God's kingdom, which will be the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen 
or experience because everything within it is living with, har in, with the harmony of our Creator. And so that's what we're going to look at these next ten-some weeks, is what does that life look like, and how do we reflect it more? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us uh, to be what you have called us to be. We pray that through the power in us, you would transform us in a way that we could never be transformed. We pray that you would rewire our very desires to realize that to follow you is not to give up on any fun or pleasure or transcendence or joy, but it is actually the path to joys unimaginable, to pleasures forevermore. But Father, we will only see that unless Christ is working in our heart and the Spirit is aligning us to make us reflect your design blueprints. We pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.